morning so that we can come together as a church and worship God together. Uh, At this point in our service, we open up the Bible and we talk about it. Uh, We have already sung about it and we've talked to God. We now want to hear from him and we believe that God speaks to us through the Bible, through his written word, his written message to us. And so we open it up and talk about it. We're going to do that in just a second. Before we dive in, let me just say one thing briefly about where we're kind of heading as a church over these next few weeks, starting next Sunday. This is the the sixth and final Sunday of kind of a six-part series that we've done, series of messages in the Old Testament book of Psalms. So we're going to get into the the sixth and final uh, psalm that we're talking about, Psalm 136, here in just a moment. Uh, I want to talk about where we're going next briefly. For the next seven weeks after this, we're going to talk about what it means to be a church that, um, in the language of the New Testament in the Bible, a church that makes disciples. Uh, A disciple is a follower of Jesus, and that's a process that God calls each one of us to, a relationship with him that starts with saving faith in Christ and then continues to grow for your entire life. And churches are to be places where more and more disciples are made. And we're going to talk about what that means and how that affects us as a church. Our leadership team has been wrestling with that for several months now, last spring and over the course of the summer. We've shared some of that with you in kind of bits and pieces through different sermons and teachings. And we just really want to talk about launching a whole new year of ministry this fall, being a disciple-making church. And I want to say this in particular because there's a way that you can join us. Uh, We don't want this to be a passive experience where you simply come to church and listen to somebody like myself unpack scripture and then walk away. This is something we want to be involved in as a whole church actively as well. And there's a great way that you can do that. Out at the Harvest Book Table, which is in our atrium, we have these study guides. It's called Growing One Another, Discipleship in the Church. These are available at very low cost. They're five bucks each. We have a bunch of them. We've had these for a while, but we've just ordered a bunch more. And I want to encourage you, if, if this is your home church and you're interested in finding out kind of who we are or what, what it means to follow God, or if you're checking out whether or not this may be your home church, could I encourage you to pick this up and spend the next seven weeks going through this? There's Each week, it's broken down. It's pretty simple. There's a passage of scripture. There's several questions that are just designed to get you thinking about what the Bible says and jotting down some of your answers. You could take two or three of those questions a day, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day to invest in thinking through the Bible and writing some things down. And that's going to parallel pretty closely with the sermons that we're going to be preaching on Sunday mornings. So it's not often that we ask you to join us all as one church in doing something for a season, but this is one of those times. We want to encourage all of our small groups, our community life groups, to consider for the next seven weeks, starting next week, grabbing these and going through them together, talking with one another about what God has called us to in terms of being disciples, who make disciples, what does that mean, how does that relate to us, and getting involved in that process. Uh, We also encourage you, if you're maybe not at a community life group, Pick up one of those, grab a friend, um, ask somebody to go out to coffee and say, hey, would you like to just get together for the next six or seven weeks and let's just do this together. We'll just write down answers, we'll get together, we'll share our answers, we'll try to figure out together what God is saying. Because that aspect of being active in hearing God's word and then responding to it as a church is so vital. So we've got copies of these available uh, right now today. You can pick them up right after the church service at the Harvest Book Table out in our atrium for five bucks each. We'll have them out next week as well. So I encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity. I'm looking, really looking forward to digging in as a church and saying, how can we follow God in this way during this season? So with that in mind, let me, let me turn our attention back now to the book of Psalms. 
uh, the sixth, as I mentioned, and final book in this series of sermons, we're just calling A Soak in the Psalms. We kind of ended our summer uh, and this kind of early fall period with six Sundays where we're looking at these psalms. A psalm is just, um, it's a worship song, really, is what it is. Uh, the Old Testament book of Psalms is a collection of 150 worship songs that the ancient Israelites used to help guide their personal and their collective, their corporate worship together. And they cover so many aspects of life and, and, and what it means to follow God and how that not only works, they not only teach us, but also how it feels, how it lives. And these are designed for churches to think through together, sing through together, and celebrate together. And so we're going to look at the sixth and final one in Psalm 136 in just a moment. A psalm that talks about experiencing what we know to be true in the love of God, experiencing what we know to be true. Experience of something that we know in our heads is a vitally important process when it comes to actually learning and being changed. A simple illustration of this came from my freshman year of high school. Uh, I had a math teacher, uh, algebra or whatever it was, I had a math teacher named Ms. Perry. And uh, Ms. Perry was well known in the school for being blunt, brash, uh, not very warm and cuddly person at all, <laughs> and also for being super strict as a teacher. Ms. Perry, I think, had come from the East Coast, like the Northeast, you know, Boston, New York, someplace like that. She had a little bit of an accent I couldn't place at the time. But, and, you know, if, if you're kind of familiar with just sort of East Coast manners, they're very different than West Coast manners. It's just what she was raised with. From our perspective, from my perspective, she was very, very blunt and sort of harsh lady. She was not somebody you could expect sympathy or compassion from. You could learn math from her. <laughs> But you were not going to get a lot, of, a lot of the feels, you know, coming from her on a bad day. Uh, behavior issues in the class, man, zero tolerance. You would get called out, and if that didn't work, you would get sent out. I mean, she just had no tolerance for nothing. You're here to learn math. Let's get down to it. Uh, late work, you know, I need you to excuse this absence. Man, she didn't believe there was such a thing as a good excuse. <laughs> so you were very likely to not get excused. Missing class, even for a legitimate school reason. You know, maybe there's an extracurricular activity. You're in music and you've got to go to this like band you know, uh, concert thing or a sports kind of thing or, or even an educational trip that you were going to take and so you're going to miss class for a couple of days. Oh, she hated those. She hated them and she hated them because she had to approve those absences, right? Because they were sanctioned school activities. She had to excuse the absences, but she didn't want to. Like, I mean, in her head, she understood these are supposed to be educational experiences, but she did not see any value in it. And if you're wondering if I'm just being too harsh for her or I'm assuming things about her that I really didn't know, how do I know that this is what she thought? I'll tell you how I knew. Because she told us. She told us. We would come in. It was very common that, you know, people are coming in, classes getting started. She starts chit-chatting with people, and eventually people settle down, and it kind of transitioned into like a two- to four-minute sort of rant. They would never go on long, but she just had no problem telling us exactly what she thought about whatever. Oh, there's three people that are gone on this XYZ trip, and oh, I'm so frustrated about this, and it's going to set everybody. They should be here. We shouldn't be taking kids out of class. I mean, she would just tell us, and we're sitting there going like, yeah, okay. Can we talk about X plus Y equals Z? Like, I, okay, we got to get, you know, then she would go into the math lesson. Well, that was Miss Perry. Until 
until one day late that year, it's the spring sometime, I, I, to this day, I have no idea how this happened, um, but she ended up agreeing to help be a faculty chaperone for a student trip to Washington, D.C. I don't know if she was told by the principal she had to or what. I have no idea how she got into this thing because it seemed like the kind of thing she wouldn't do, but she did. And off she went. She was gone. We had a substitute teacher for like a week or whatever, and she was gone with a group of students on this trip for several days, some other faculty members. And when she came back, she was a different woman. It was amazing. She came back and went on about how great the trip was. How awesome it was. She had no idea how cool an experience that could be because she finally got out of the classroom and into a different kind of educational setting with her fellow teachers and some students. And, you know, to her credit, she told us, like, how she now understood the value of these kinds of trips. She now gets why the school does this, and she would be much more likely to excuse those kind of absences anyway, not necessarily any of the other ones, but those kind of absences... And she now supported those trips. I remember sitting there as a high school freshman just going like, who are you and what did you do with Miss Perry? Because the woman that left seemed like a very different person than the woman that came back. Something had changed in her because she had experienced the, the value of the trip, something that she knew in her head was theoretically true, but she really didn't believe it. Once she experienced it, she suddenly saw the value in it, and that changed her outlook and her attitude. Isn't that how it works so often in life? We know something is true conceptually in our head. We accept that it's a fact, but we don't really grasp it fully until we've experienced it. It's one of the reasons I think that the book of Psalms in the Bible is so helpful. Because these, these Psalms, they teach us truths about God and about ourselves, and about the world we live in, but as songs, they express those truths musically and lyrically, and they deal with emotional, experiential themes, not just with truth in the abstract. The Psalms invite us to experience their truths in a fuller way. And that's why soaking in the Psalms, trying to just stop and think and connect with these truths, not just in our heads, but slow down the busy schedules enough to really experience what's being talked about can be such a transformative experience. Today's psalm, psalm number 136, focuses on something that many people know is true conceptually, but can struggle to actually experience. And that is God's love for you. God's love for you. Now, if you've been around the Bible or church for any length of time, and if I open my mouth and say, hey, the Bible teaches God loves you, most of you are probably not going to be shocked, right? It's not the first time you've ever heard that. And yet, do I experience that? Do I truly believe that? Does it shape how I am seeing my world right now? And if so, how? That's what this psalm is all about. Psalm 136 helps us see and savor the unchanging love of God. And so in the next few moments that we have together, I hope to help you both learn something about God's love and experience something about God's love that is new and fresh for you 
whether you're brand new to this whole God thing or whether you've been following Jesus for many, many years. This psalm helps us to see and savor the unchanging love of God. So let me mention a couple things about Psalm 136 before we get to the heart of what it is. It's a very unique psalm. It actually goes with the one right before it, Psalm 135. They're partner psalms, and they look at the same truth from different angles. Psalm 135, in brief, calls the people to praise God for who he is. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read through that one. We're going to spend our time on Psalm 136. So let me just, um, in a few seconds, kind of summarize it. Psalm 135 calls God's people to praise him for who he is, his power and his character. He's awesome. He's strong. And they also, it also causes, calls God's people to praise him for what he's done. Uh, it lists his acts in history. He's sovereign over the world. He created everything, and he rescued, very prominently in the middle of that psalm, he rescued the ancient Israelites from Egypt, that famous bit with the plagues and uh, the Red Sea crossing and God delivering them out of Egypt. So God is uh, praised, and the emphasis is on his power, such as in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. The emphasis is on his power and also on his fame. Verse 13, your renown, O Lord, that is your fame, uh, sorry, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown or your fame, O Lord, endures throughout all the ages. So you read Psalm 135 and you get this call to praise God because he's so awesome. He's done so many awesome things. Then we get to Psalm 136. And what this psalm does is it takes a key portion of Psalm 135 and it expands it out, and it dwells on it more with a different angle. Specifically in Psalm 135, from verses 8 through 12, that psalm lists how God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, delivered them to a promised land, and gave them a hope and a future. And God did all of that for them. Psalm 136 now takes that and shows us how God did that because of his love. Because of his Love. Let me just read a few verses from Psalm 136. I'll start in verse uh, 10 down to 16, and then 21 to 23. That'll give us a sense of how the psalm goes. Uh, give thanks to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And who brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But he overthrew the Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. Drop down to verse 21. Give thanks to him who gave this their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel and his, his servant for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembers us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you notice a pattern? (laughs) 
It's funny, sometimes people um, criticize modern worship music, and there's a lot of good reasons they do that, but sometimes they criticize it for being too repetitive, and I'm like, have you ever read Psalm 136, right? Um, over and over again. What's happening here is that this is a, it's a festival psalm. Historians aren't exactly sure how it was used, but it was probably, uh, the musical term would be antiphonal. It's like a call and response thing. Like the people would come to Jerusalem in these big feast days and they would have these uh, worship concerts. They would use music in their worship and there would be like a choir that would lead the people, sort of like the music team, right? The worship team. And then there'd be the people and it was a call and response. So like it might have gone something like the choir would sing the first half, um, you know, in some sort of musical lyric, praise God uh, who brought Israel out from among the Egyptians. And then the people would respond for his steadfast love endures forever. It's kind of a chorus. And then the choir would sing with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. That's why it kind of reads that way. It was a back and forth worship song. This is not a different idea than Psalm 135. Praise God because he's so great and strong. Rather, it's a different angle on the same thing. The glory of God. God's glory shined brightly when his, shines brightly when his, when his value is seen and savored. And so in Psalm 135, the Bible calls attention to God's sovereign power over the world so that people can see it and be impressed, and that's God, to God's glory. But now in Psalm 136, the Bible calls attention to God's unchanging love so that people can see it and revel in being loved this way, and that too gives God glory. As Pastor John Piper famously said a number of years ago, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a good way to sum up this basic idea. God is most glorified when I am most delighted in him, not when I simply acknowledge that he is there, but when my heart is captured with him and his love. It's not just the seeing of God, believing something in my head. It's the savoring of God, experientially longing for and being satisfied in who he is. Which leads me to a question. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe God loves you this morning? If so, do you believe it merely as an idea? It's a fact of theology you acknowledge to be true. Or does it help define your own self-image? The love of God makes me understand who I am. Does it help define the way you see the world around you? See, that's what Psalm 136 is aiming at. It's, it's trying to take us on a journey of reflecting widely and deeply on God's love so that it moves beyond the thoughts and it touches the heart. And it, it pursues this journey largely in two different ways. So there's two things I want us to see about the psalm before we conclude. First of all, it, it communicates that everything God has done, everything he does, is an expression of his love. That's the first point. Everything God does is an expression of his love. And then secondly, it tells us that God's love is unchanging. It's like nothing we've ever experienced before. This is a worship song about the love of God. Let's take just a brief look at each one of those. First of all, everything God has done, all of God's acts, his actions, are expressions of his love. That's such an obvious part of this 
uh, song. The, the most obvious feature of this, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know it, it just jumps off the page at you, right? It's like every other line is this repeated chorus, this repeated refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever, 20, I think, eight times, I counted them if I remember right, over and over in this, this psalm, his steadfast love endures forever, his steadfast love endures forever. We got the point, did you? Did you? You see, notice that it's not just a rote repetition. The song has taken many of the things the previous song exalted God for and added a new reason, a new facet. Yeah, God is great and powerful, but all that greatness and power is an expression of his love for you. It's an expression of his love. So, for example, um, thank God for his being good and powerful. This is just kind of a summary outline of what's in this song. God is good and he is powerful. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's in the sovereign place of power over everything. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Thank God for his goodness and power because he loves you. See, that's the message. Thank God for his creation in the world. Verses 4 through 9 talk about uh, grabbing some language from the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, that God created the earth out of nothing and he created the sun, moon, and the stars. And it says he did all of this because he loves you. You see, God's, God's creation of the world is, is an expression of his love for you. And we're part of the world he created. God didn't, God didn't need us. Like he wasn't lonely, right? I've I got to create some people I can talk to because I'm going stir-crazy here. That's not what happened. <laughs> he created us because he delighted to create something amazing and beautiful, this universe in which we live, and he delighted to create beings, human beings like us, who could see and appreciate that and enjoy with him his goodness. It is a loving, gracious gift. God's creation is because he loves us. He didn't have to do it. He did it because he loves. Verses 10 to 16, as we saw earlier, thank God for rescuing the ancient Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, the people who were originally singing the song, like that was their history, their national history. God rescued us. He remembered us from slavery and death, and he rescued us, which we were powerless to do, because he loved us. Thank him because he did this out of love. Verses 17 to 22, thank God for giving them a home. Talks about how they, they came up against people and nations they could never defeat and God miraculously defeated them, drove them out and gave the Israelites this promised land, this wonderful place to live in for perpetuity, established them in a beautiful home. Why? Because he loves us, because his steadfast love endures forever. And last but not least, they thanked God for caring for them when they were nothing special. We read those verses as well. He remembered us in our lowest state, rescued us from our foes, gives food to all flesh. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. You see what the song is doing? In every aspect, it's saying there's all kinds of things to give God praise for, but don't just praise him because he did some big cool thing. Understand that that is an expression of God's love, which never changes for you. This is one helpful way to move knowledge of God's love to an experience of God's love. 
And that is to, to recount the many gifts of God and then frame them as expressions of His love. It's so often in life, it's easy to, to focus on what we don't have, right? The bad things that are happening, the, the circumstances that we wish could change, and sort of take for granted everything that went right to get us to this point. Did you eat breakfast this morning? If I was a betting man, I'd put a lot of money on the fact <laughs> that just about everybody in this room could say, yep, ate breakfast this morning. Verse 25 tells us God gives food to all flesh, to all people. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Man, I'm thinking, how many times do I just kind of pull up to the plate and tuck right into the meal, right? <laughs> Other times it's like, oh yes, God, thank you so much for this food. I acknowledge it came from you. And then I dive in. How about if I go one step further? Yeah, God, this came from you because you love me. Hmm, that puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? What else has God done for you and for I that are expressions of his love? Were you born? Okay, now that one I would put a lot of money on. Come on. <laughs> Were you born? Psalm 100, verses 3 and 4. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Thank God for making you. And now this psalm adds, because he loved you. He loved you. Your existence, your life, your breath, every aspect of it, the fact that I have an immune system that just battled off that little head cold I had or that COVID case I got through or whatever the thing is, right? All of these, these are incredible gifts, so easy to take for granted. This psalm helps us not only give God credit for what he's done, but to recognize everything he's done is an expression of his love. If you were to to create a gratitude list, a running list of things you were grateful to God for, how would that change your perspective? If you were to go further and express how every one of those gifts from God is an expression of his love, how would that change your perspective? Thank God for the natural beauty around us, for the privilege of sight of hearing, of music. I mean, you start listing things to be grateful for and you get overwhelmed. There's so many things to thank God for and to recognize every one of them is because he loves. The longer we soak in that, the more it can change your perspective. And I'll tell you, the very capstone of God's love expressed in his actions is actually reflected in this psalm. They had this personal history of having been rescued from Egypt and delivered to the promised land. But throughout the entire Bible, the Bible constantly goes back to that story and says, you know what, that's just a metaphor for all of life. That God's ultimate mission is not to just take one group of people, the Israelites, and rescue them from one particular slavery, their slavery in ancient Egypt, and take them to one particular plot of ground in the promised land. That's just a metaphor for what God is doing for all of us. God is seeking to save you and I from our slavery to sin and eternal death in hell. And he's seeking to give you a truly forever home. Not in the suburbs. In heaven. 
That's his mission. That's the message of the entire Bible. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And just as his Old Testament rescue from Egypt was motivated by his love, so his rescue of you through his son Jesus Christ is motivated by his love. Probably the most famous verse in all the entire Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. Say it with me. For God so loved, there it is, the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, not die, but have eternal or everlasting life. Why did God send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and pay the penalty for your sins and my sins? Because he so loved the world. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this. You want to know how much God loves you? Look at what he did. While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. The perfectly holy God, the Bible tells us, did the unthinkable. He condescended to become man, Jesus Christ, God himself in human flesh, so that he could lay that human life down on the cross for people who were still sinning and didn't deserve it. It's shocking, and that's the clear teaching of the Bible. And God himself is telling us why he did it. He's demonstrating his love. Oh, friends, recount the thousand things God has done for you that are so easy to take for granted every day. See them as expressions of God's love for you and talk about them with others. That helps cement them in our own hearts. This can help take knowledge to experience. The first thing the psalm does is it shows us that God's acts are expressions of his love, but it also does one other thing. It tells us something about the nature of God's love because it's different than what we know and experience as people. It specifically tells us that God's love is unchanging. It's unchanging. That repeated refrain, that repeated chorus, the steadfast love of the Lord, it literally says, is to all generations. It never runs out. It goes on forever. So that was written in Hebrew originally. Our English translations have just translated that. His steadfast love endures forever. It never goes away. There's no human being that's going to wake up a thousand years from now and discover that God's done loving the human race. I used it all up on the previous thousand years, you know? It doesn't work that way. It's steadfast. Steadfast means it's unmoving. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't budge. Nothing changes it. I found some steadfast rocks in my yard once. You ever done that? A number of years ago, uh, the back fence between our property and the neighbor behind us, a couple sections of it blew down, and we realized, okay, the whole fence needs to go. It's kind of rotting out, so it's time to get rid of the whole thing. Dig post holes, put up new posts, the whole nine yards. And so as I'm digging these post holes, you, know, you run into a few pretty big rocks, and some of them are always bigger than you think, and you've got to work around them and kind of dig around enough. Even now you're kind of outside the circle you wanted to get outside of, but you got to in order to pry it loose and finally get rid of the rock. And I got to one point about... Well, I'm not going to tell you where it is. If you ever come over to my house, don't look too closely at the fence post. Because here's the thing. Uh, I had the exact spot I wanted, one particular fence post, and I hit a rock, and I'm like, here we go again. And I start digging around it, digging around it, trying to pry it loose. It is not budging. You dig around it and dig around it again. You're pulling and yanking, like, I'm going to throw my back out, you know. No, no. So, and I keep digging and digging, and this rock would not quit. I'm like, is this a mountain? Under, I mean, 
it probably wasn't, but it was clearly not just like, you know, a chunk of concrete or, or a football-sized rock. This thing was big. And after a while, I dug around it so many times, and I'm, I'm prying on it, I'm trying to get a shovel and other pry bars and things underneath it. Can I just bust this thing loose? It is not budging. I finally realized, do I need to get a backhoe back here and like scoop up half my backyard to get rid of this rock? Well, that's not going to happen. So I did the only logical thing to do. I moved the fence post. Right? I had to put it like, you know, a foot or a little over a foot further away than I wanted to. I'm like, this is still going to work, but I could not budge that thing. God's love is like that. God's love is like that. To press that analogy a little bit, the love of people can be fairly small rocks, <laughs> I love you, you love me, that's great, <laughs> until you stab me in the back, and now I don't love you anymore, right? It, it can be not terribly difficult to dislodge the love that we have for one another. That marriage we thought was going to last forever, and then, right? The erosion of time, distance, bad choices, sinning against one another, whatever it is, you know, undermines it, the love's gone. The best friend you thought would never leave you and until a new opportunity and a better friend came along, whew, suddenly they're just out of your life, right? The love of people has limits, even when it's real. It has limits. It, it is, it's hard to imagine a love that could not be dislodged because we don't ever experience that. We do enough bad things, we become less lovable, and we know enough to know that I can't expect to be loved now. But you see, what the Bible is telling us here is that God's love is different. He already knows the real you. He actually knows the real you better than you know the real you. Like, you're never going to surprise God. You're never going to think something or feel something or do something, and God's going to go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. He already knows it all. He knows all of your sin. That, th those sins you committed that you try to hide from people and make yourself look better because you're so afraid if they ever saw the real you, they would be repulsed. Here's the problem with God. You can't hide any of that from him. He already knows it all. He is all-knowing, the Bible says. There is nothing he doesn't know. He's not only fully aware of every sin you've committed in the past, every sin you are committing right now, but he is also aware of every sin you will commit in the future that you don't even know about yet. He knows it all. And his love doesn't change. So something is going on here. This is a very different kind of love. The point is simply this. You simply cannot budge God's love. You don't have it in you to make God stop loving you. That's what the Bible says. This is because God loves in a way that's different than people tend to. While, while human love tends to be at least partly, if not largely, dependent on how lovable the other person is. I love you because of how much you do for me. I love you because of how beautiful and wonderful and handsome you are. I love you because of how you make me feel, right? These are natural ways that human beings tend to love one another. But God's love is different. It's not dependent on the nature and the lovableness of the person. It's based on his own nature and his own character. And God's nature and character never change. 
which makes this really good news. That's why his love never changes. Put it this way. God does not love you because you're so lovable. Because you're not. Neither am I. The Bible is saying something very different. God loves you because he is a lover at heart. That's who he is. And that's great news because his nature never changes. That's why the Bible can say his love endures forever. I never have to fear a future in which God's finally going to run out of love. That's it. You cross the line. I'm done with you. This means that we can't earn God's love. That is simply not the way the Bible says a relationship with God works. Soaking in this unchanging love of God, the way the psalm describes it, uh, at one level is a very humiliating experience, right? Because I have to recognize that it's wonderful God loves me, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. Actually, I'm kind of a creep sometimes, maybe more times than I think I am. To say that God loves me and it doesn't matter means God doesn't love me because I've done anything great. God doesn't love you because you're a good person. God doesn't love you because even you're an extra spiritual person. God doesn't love you if you've read the Bible and tried to just keep all of his commandments and do the right religious things. Even if all those things are true, they are irrelevant when it comes to whether God will love you or not. So this kind of love kind of undermines our pride, our self-sufficiency, our sense that we're good people. On the other hand, it also undermines the opposite, and that is when we experience as people deep shame over who we are, over what we've done. Let's be honest. For many of us, we could say, I don't really believe deep down that God loves me because blank. How would you fill in that blank? I don't really believe God loves me because whatever you put in that blank, it's going to be something about God or something about you. Uh, Occasionally, it's something about God. Maybe we just don't believe that God's nature is perfectly loving or, or we want to see God only as holy and righteous, but he doesn't have any mercy or love for us unless we've earned it. You know, sometimes we've just been given different pictures of God. Different world religions teach different things about the character of God. The Bible says he is a lover by nature, loving even those who don't deserve it. More often, I would fill in that blank with something about me. I don't believe God really loves me because blank most often has something to do with me. Maybe I know what I've done in the past. Maybe I feel worthless or I feel like I don't measure up. Maybe that's what you've been told all your life. So you always struggle believing you have value because people who should have loved you better didn't and that affected you. And then we transfer that straight to God. None of that, even though it may all be true, none of it has any effect on whether God loves you. And that's incredibly freeing. You are loved far more deeply than you ever dared dream was possible. Soaking in that kind of love creates an acceptance and a security that allows people to thrive, to grow, and to press deeper and further in to a relationship with God. That's the love he wants you to experience. That's the love our church hopes you experience. So, 
Everything God has done is an expression of his love, and his love is unchanging because it's based on his unchanging character. And this is how a relationship with God works. We'll end with this. In John chapter 13, the Bible illustrates so clearly how a relationship with God works. The first five verses, let me read those to us. This is Jesus, the night before he dies. He's with his disciples. Listen to the language. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was about to go back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is God himself in human flesh. Loved his followers, his disciples, to the very end. And how did he do that? He got up, he took the servant's place, he washed their feet. He loved them. He served them. He gave to them. They were even shocked by that. Peter says, Jesus, you can't do that. Like, I'm supposed to serve you. You're God. You can't take this servant's place for me. And Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see what the Bible is telling us? Is not only does God love us, but that's how a relationship with God works. If we don't accept that love, we have nothing from God. Put this another way. The entire relationship that God is calling us into is rooted in and grows out of one foundational dynamic. It is when we receive what God has freely given us and we don't deserve. His love. That night, he got down and washed his disciples' feet. The next day, he was falsely accused, whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross, suffocated, and died. The Bible says this is God demonstrating his love for us, that he paid for my sins and your sins on the cross. He offers us that forgiveness, that absolution, that cleansing because of his work, not ours, as a free gift motivated by his love. Will you receive it? By saying, yes, Jesus, I'm banking my entire future and eternity on you and on you paying for my sins. I want to go deeper and deeper into that love every day that I'm alive. That's how a relationship with God works. If you have questions about how to begin or deepen a relationship with God, we would love to talk with you after the service. Several of our pastors and elders will be right down here front. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Just end with a couple questions to reflect on. I encourage you to think about these. Uh, Maybe get together in community life groups or just invite a friend out to coffee or or lunch or something later today or later this week and maybe share your thoughts on these. Questions. Do you really believe God loves you? Why or why not? Talk about that yourself. Talk about that with others.
What's convinced you that God really loves you? What keeps you from believing that? Another question, if, if you grasped God's unchanging love for you more deeply, what would change in your life? All of us could grasp God's love more deeply. So if you did, what would change in your life? Would it affect your attitudes, your actions, your thoughts, your relationships, your priorities? Lastly, how can you soak in the love that God has for you this week? How can you move from theory to experience? I want to ask the music team to come back up here. They're going to lead us to close our service as we get to sing expressions of God's love for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the incredible privilege of being loved by you when we deserve precisely nothing good from you. God, we acknowledge today the truth that you've laid out in the Bible, that every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is guilty before you. And yet, while we were sinners, you died for us. We didn't deserve it. But your grace, motivated by your love, gives us a lifeline and a hope. And Jesus, I pray that you would help each person here to connect, maybe for the first time, or maybe in a deeper way with the love that you have, the sacrificial servant-hearted love you have for us. May it humble us. May we feel free to receive it. May it affect our identity. May we be freed from striving for proving ourselves and our value to other people and simply being and receiving your love. And God, having hearts that are so filled with that love, would you put us on mission to invest in others and express to them the same love you have for them? God, thank you for the love of God perfected in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make that real to us, we pray, for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen.